This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. During my years in the classroom, my partner teacher and I used to sit around and say that we got to sit around and talk about books with teenagers. Of course, teaching is far more complicated than that, but at the heart of it, that's what we got to do. Talk about human stories year after year with young people. Throughout years in the classroom, puzzles begin to come together in literature that is discussed over and over. And for example, by my 50th reading of Gilgamesh, I felt a lot different about Gilgamesh than I did on my fifth reading. The patterns, puzzles, and connections within books from human history speak to us at different places in time. And if you reread a book at 15, 25, and 35, The years of tilled earth across that life make the experience of revisiting a text so rich, so rewarding, and new. Any teacher who has taught a book many times knows this sensation, and all listeners who have reread their favorite book multiple times probably know exactly what I'm talking about. With that in mind, I was delighted to get a new book in the mail by Dean Slider, called The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, Finding Nirvana in the Classics. The book is out now from New World Library. Dean Slider is an author, meditation teacher, and he taught for 33 years at the Pingree School in New Jersey, where he taught 10th grade English and also an elective called The Literature of Enlightenment. Dean's new book, The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, examines the ways mindfulness, haiku, and dharma teachings are present in works by Mark Twain, Virginia Woolf, Toni Morrison, Frederick Douglass, Emily Dickinson, J.D. Salinger, William Blake, and many more. This book is the cumulative effect of decades of talking with teenagers uh, during school and then spending the summers leading and going on meditation retreats. After coming back to school from summers on retreat, Dean began to put together new connections in the books that he was reading with his students, and this book began to take shape. This book could easily be a supplementary textbook for literature courses at the secondary and post-secondary levels because the chapters contain phenomenal snippets from Shakespeare, Keats, Whitman, Rogers, and Hammerstein, and Melville, and then blows the doors open with Dean's unique views from years of meditation practice and teaching. It's super interesting, and I think that you will really love what Dean has to say. This conversation was absolutely lovely because Dean and I got into the fabulous depths of what we love about being teachers and the book. You can find Dean's work at deanslider.com, and you can find Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature out now from New World Library. Thank you so much for listening. Dean Slider, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Greg. It's really great to be here. 
I'm delighted that you're here, and I'm wondering if we can just kick it off by having you introduce yourself a little bit to all the listeners out there who may not know who you are and what you do. Well, my name is Dean Slider. Uh, it's uh, spelled funny. It's got a U in the middle of it. Um, I love it how the back of the book says the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. When you go through life uh, with a, with a, living in America with a Dutch name and you hear <laughs> all kinds of entertaining variations on it. So this is, yes, my, my one chance to get people to get it right. Um, so yeah, I'm Dean Slider. I'm a teacher. Uh, I've been teaching meditation my whole adult life. For 33 years, I taught English and ran meditation programs at the Pingree School, a very fine prep school in New Jersey. And uh, I write books. And uh, recently published my sixth book, The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature. Wonderful. We're going to get into all that. I want to start off by teaching, uh, talking about teaching a little bit, because I feel like the foundation of the book is kind of um, rooted in your years in the classroom in a lot of ways. And so as an English and history teacher and world religions teacher myself, I, I kind of want to know more about your, your teaching experience. And you already said kind of where you taught, but I'm just like wondering if you can just kind of tell me about what your what your career was like a little bit, some like courses you taught over the years, some of your favorite stuff to do with, with teenagers like throughout your career. I'm just like really curious to hear some teaching stories to kick us off today. Yeah, good. No, I love talking about this yeah. stuff. Uh, I mean, I was so fortunate in 19... 19- End of 1976, I had been an itinerant meditation teacher for some years. And before that, I'd just been basically an itinerant hippie hitchhiking <laughs> around the country. And, and I was now what, 27 years old and had met a woman I was interested in. And the whole idea of, of maybe starting a family was starting to get interesting. But that meant I needed a day job. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a friend of mine was in the English department at the Pingree School, and they got an opening in the middle of the year. A new teacher who'd started in September mm-hmm. made it to the Christmas break, wrote to the department head, said, the kids have driven me crazy. I'm not coming back. So they were doing interviews in January, and um, I was the least qualified person who interviewed. All these people had classroom experience. Hmm. All these They had PhDs. But my friend had a hunch I would be a good teacher. So he went around very quietly sabotaging the other applications. Nice. <laughs> and, and, and I was actually just supposed to finish out the year from February till June. And yada, 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 I was there for 33 years. What an interesting approach to the classroom, too. Do you think that that was like a benefit, like kind of not being explicitly trained to be like, well, you're going through our education program to train you. You kind of had like must have had like a pretty open approach and open mind to like how to go about to being a teacher. Well, it, it was benefit. What was beneficial about it was that I was thrown into the water with no time to prepare. Mm-hmm. I, and there were holes in my reading. I mean, so I had, not having the summer to prepare to read the books, it was just, and I was constantly trying to keep up with marking papers and so yeah. forth. And so it was, okay, Dean, tomorrow you're going to be teaching the Canterbury Tales. I had never read the Canterbury Tales. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, so I would run upstairs to the, the stacks of the library, pull out four or five books of Chaucer criticism mm-hmm. and, and just start thumbing through and, 
And this was a big discovery for me was that somehow I would get an intuitive grasp of what was going on. Yeah. I would pick up a, a phrase from here, a phrase from here, and then come, okay, I got it. I got enough to go into the classroom. And I had enough kind of, I don't know, showbiz instincts to know that, no, with the Canterbury Tales, you don't start at the beginning because then you're going to lose them. Go straight to the dirty ones. Mm. Right, you go straight to the Miller's Tale yeah. with all the the you know the crazy sex farce and the fart jokes yeah. and so forth, and uh, you know make people laugh, keep people engaged, and and keep it rooted to their real life experience. And meanwhile, you know, keep da tap dancing and stay one one chapter ahead of the kids, and you're okay. Nice. Well, you know, I'm wondering about your in your decades of teaching, what some of your favorite titles are to talk about with, with students like as a teacher myself like i'm thinking about like othello or like a small place by jamaica kincaid some of the ones that like i loved teaching mm -hmm. and like even though like the the things would change from year to year i was thinking about the things that i was like really always looking forward to doing with the students and i'm wondering what what some of those titles are for you yeah well i taught english 10 10th grade english for Me too. almost my whole career and i have to say that was just about my favorite grade to teach. I loved teaching at least 10th graders at Pingree who were probably, you know, a year, year and a half more academically mature than kids this, at the same grade level at a lot of other schools. Mm -hmm. um, and what I found was at that age, kind of ninth grade, they're, they're really starting to think conceptually. Yeah. By 10th grade, they're comfortable with thinking conceptually. But they haven't gotten jaded yet, you know. By, by the mm -hmm. time they're in eleventh grade and twelfth grade, they're 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 really getting preoccupied with other things. Yeah, uh, and they're and they may be getting like too cool to get excited. So so tenth grade to me was just really that sweet spot. Um, and the so we we wrote we read Macbeth every year. We yeah. spent about a month on Macbeth, which was great. We read. Um, probably if I had to pick one that I just look forward to teaching every yeah. year, it was Salinger's Nine Stories. Cool. You know, they are such, they are so beautiful. They are so revelatory of human psyche, human behavior, the, the highs and lows of, of human beings, um, Plus, they open the window to, you know, higher spiritual aspirations, Dharma aspirations that uh, Salinger gets deeper into in his, his later books. Uh, and they're such masterpieces of literary construction. You know, each, each of those nine stories is just like a little gem. Mm. And uh, you could spend a whole week, but, you know, because of time pressures, we would spend a whole day on each story and just to see how all the gears and levers of, of literary technique work there was just, and to see kids getting it because it's written on a level, even though it, it's, it's just, you know, high, high artistry, it's on a level that, that a smart 10th grader can see, they can get it. 
Awesome. Well, we're going to bring Salinger back into the conversation here. I feel like that's a really nice segue into the book, um, which you have just put out from my longtime friends at New World Library who have been supporting my my podcast work for several years at this point. But the book, as you said earlier, is The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, Finding Nirvana in the Classics. And I'm curious about the origin of this book, how you went about planning it out. Um, if it was like before you were leaving the classroom, if you were thinking about this, if it was after, I'm curious about how the vision for this book began to sprout in your mind. Well, the vision started to sprout uh, because of my, essentially my double life, mm -hmm. which was uh, that from September till June, I was, I was in the classroom, I was teaching literature uh, and coming back a whole lot of what was in my syllabus did not change. So I got to come back every year and teach Huckleberry Finn again, mm -hmm. come back every year and teach Great Gatsby to my 11th grade American lit course again. Mm -hmm. And unless you're completely phoning it in, you, you keep getting deeper into these works. You For sure. Things you hadn't seen before. And then in my case, in the summers and Christmas breaks, I'm off on meditation retreats. I'm sitting with my teachers, with the lamas and the rishis. Uh, and so the connections started to be made. And, and really, this book was um, gestating for 45 years. I'm not wow. sure at what point I realized, oh, this needs to be a book. But I was starting to see the connections. I was starting to see how... When Huck, when Huckleberry Finn manages to uh, escape from the genteel Christian lady on the one bank of the Mississippi who's trying to civilize him, mm -hmm. and then on the other bank of the river, his brutal, bigoted, alcoholic father who's going to kill him, yeah. and then he goes down the river, right, which is the, and then I, I saw, oh, wait a minute, that's the Buddha's golden middle way, mm. too tight and too loose. Hmm. Has anyone else seen that? Has anyone else commented on that? And then when Huck uh, first escapes, he gets into a salvaged canoe. And um, there's this beautiful description that I have in the book of how he's, he, he finally, after the hectic scramble to escape from his father, he lies back on his, he lies on his back in the bottom of the canoe. He says, and I just let her float. Mm. And I got out amongst the, the driftwood and just let her float and 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 I had a good rest and a good smoke from my pipe and looking up into the the sky and the moonlight, not a cloud in it. The sky looks ever so deep when you lay on your back in the moonshine. Mm. And I went <laughs> and I went, A, my God, that's so beautiful. Yeah. It's such a beautiful human experience. B such beautiful, simple, straightforward writing. And C this is the baptism into the transcendent. Yeah. This is, and this is quite literally what I b had been practicing with my Tibetan teachers, a technique called Namkai Naljor, which translates as sky gazing meditation, where you literally gaze open eyed into the ever so deep sky and lose yourself in it. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah, exa that's exactly, I kept having these oh my gosh experiences over and yeah. over. And at some point I realized, well, that, that needs to be a book. Yeah, well, I mean, and I'm a Missouri boy, so I grew up in, this, in St. Uh, Louis looking at that river that you're talking about uh, all the time. Like I would like go to baseball games, I would go to Hannibal, like where the Mark Twain uh, boyhood home was. And so everything that you were just saying, I was like 
transported back to like a young being a young kid and going to like Mark Twain's boyhood home for like a field trip for like my elementary school, you know? Yes. No, I, I, me back I, I've time. been there a, a couple of times and that's a, that's a sacred pilgrimage for me. You know, speaking of childhood, you write movingly about your own in the introduction of the book, you talk about your first gurus and you, you know, you talked a little bit about your spiritual practice here um, in the last several minutes. So feel free to keep bringing those examples in because it's continuously fascinating to root you within the book itself. But I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit about those first gurus in your life, because uh, I found that section to be very endearing and also very fun. Oh, <laughs> Good. Um, you know, when I write a book, the the kind of the key moment for me is finding the first sentence. Mm -hmm. Once I find the first sentence, somehow I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm off to the races. Uh, for instance, I wrote a book uh, in 2005 called Cinema Nirvana, Enlightenment Lessons from the Movies. And my first sentence in that one is, Tibetan temples smell like popcorn. <laughs> Right, which is which is literally true. I'm not making cool. that up. Uh, and the the first sentence of of the Dharma Bums Guide is, uh, I found my first guru on the cover of Mad Magazine. Mm -hmm. So then I go on to tell this this story. How it was 1961. I was 11 or 12 years old. My mom had sent me out to the garage uh, because we were going to be going to a drive-in movie that night. Mm -hmm. It's a, th a thing that they had in my childhood, young whippersnapper. I don't think you know about. Yeah, there's those. a there's a few on like six miles away. It's uh, it's the really tran the, the transit drive-in theater here in Buffalo, New York. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, and uh, so I went out to the Nash Rambler station wagon to clear away all the comic books and toys that my brothers and I had left there, and my mind was turning, which it was even at that early age, it was at that time in the habit of just kind of this anxious churning going on all the time. But I was so in the middle of that churning, I didn't realize it was churning. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it was anxiety. It just felt like, oh, this is, this is what it's like to, to get up in the morning and, and go through the day. So I'm, I'm in the middle of all this churning and I'm in, you know, blah, 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 it goes the mind. I'm picking up comic books. The next one I pick up is a Mad Magazine. There on the cover is their mascot, as always, Alfred E. Newman, with his gap teeth and his idiot grin, and his motto, what? Me worry? <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, my time stopped, my mind stopped, the world stopped, everything stopped, um, and what I happened was I realized that this churning, this anxiety was called worry, that it was not being done to me, that I was doing it, that that engine was revving constantly because I had my foot on the gas pedal. Mm. And once I saw that, I was able to take my foot off the gas pedal and everything went quiet. And I went into what I later understood <clears throat> A few years later, when I started reading um, Eastern texts, I went into a full-blown experience of samadhi, satori, where really what it felt like was, oh, gee, my, my, the top of my head has been taken off and I've yeah. emerged with the sky. Um, it may sound woo-woo, but uh, I can't help it. That was my experience. Well, and then you tied that into an Emily Dickinson saying somewhere along yes. the line, didn't you? Yes, yes. So, so then the 
very exciting discovery for me was the the line from Emily Dickinson um, in in a letter that she wrote where she said, um, "When I feel physically as if the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry." Mm. I went, "Oh, okay." That is poetry and taking it, you know, more broadly, that is literature doing what literature is supposed to do. It does what meditation does. It, uh, it, it, it's supposed to induce samadhi, nirvana. So that, you know, in the subtitle of my book, when I say finding nirvana in the classics, so it's finding the insights, finding the understanding, finding the, you know, sometimes um, symbolic representation of nirvana, but on a good day, it's finding, it's the reader finding the direct experience of nirvana by, by reading those books. And then like you and your like decades in the classroom, you get to see that happen. Maybe not every day, maybe not even every week, but like, you know, every once in a while, you get to see those experiences on the faces of teenagers who are like in these extremely formative years. And you get to be like, bam, there it is. There it is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, it, it's so great to be talking with a fellow teacher here because you know what keeps us addicted. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, it's like not the most well-paid profession. It's, it's very hard work. There's so much grading, which as you mentioned in the book is not all that fun, no. but you know, you get those moments that kind of keep you coming back to like, yeah, that was a good day today. I saw that moment several times today and I'll be back tomorrow for a little, see if I can make that happen again. It's just a really inspiring thing. Exactly. I found that everything, every aspect of the job outside of the classroom marking papers, going to department meetings, just got worse and worse yeah. as, as the years went on. And being in the classroom got better and better. Yeah, I, I actually totally agree with that. Like sitting in those like wooden chairs, like in like faculty meetings, like it would always make my back hurt. It would make my knees hurt. And I would be sitting there just in a terrible mood, but then I'd be in the classroom and I'd be like, all right, forget all that stuff. I'm here in the moment now with all these groups of people and we're going to rock this regardless of how I feel about that meeting 20 minutes ago. Right, right, right. And what I found in the classroom not, was not only the kids were getting the tops of their heads blown off, but I was getting the top of my head blown off in the, you know, how athletes talk about going, being in the zone. Right. And that's not only, not only for playing sports, but for, you know, you can see it with jazz musicians. Yeah. You know, and rock musicians, you can feel when they drop into the zone and then it is all just frictionless flow. It's all coming from somewhere else. And the same thing would happen to me, and it still happens to me in my the kind of teaching that I do now, where you 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 don't have to think about it anymore. Where it's just it's like you and the kids, you're in this flow and the and the the somehow the flow is bigger than any of you. Sometimes in the middle of that I would look over toward the window and I would see the, my reflection. And I used to sit perched on the edge of my, my desk. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and, and I would look over at the window and I'd see the ref, my, re, I'll say, quote, my reflection. I, I, more accurate to say the reflection of my body. Right. And I would find myself thinking, oh, is that thing still hanging around here? You know what yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 I love it. I mean, it, well, like something that I was curious about is like you, I like to pay tribute to one of my most important mentors, uh, George Frizzell, who kind of like inspired me to like, you know, teach about world religions in schools. And also he's kind of like the reason why this whole podcast that I do exists. And you mentioned a teacher, uh, 
John Frisius, who yes. you had when you were a kid. And I'm wondering if you can tell me about this this teacher who seems like such a character in the book. And it's it's just it, his story needs to be told here, I feel like. <laughs> yes, indeed. No, John Frisius uh, was my second guru. And um, like, I'm going to read this from the go for it, because, uh, you know, you, one thing about writing is you get to hammer away at these sentences and you, you, you get them as good as you can get them. Um, he was a genuine, uh, uh, yeah, John Frisius, my English teacher at Van Nuys High School, showed me that words could open into fathomless depths. He was a genuine wild man with a big gut, a prematurely gray crew cut, and a serious drinker's flushed complexion. He wore cheap white dress shirts with two breast pockets and a pack of terry tins in each, always. He was copious in his profanity and ferocious in his skewering of hypocrites. Local ministers had pressured the, the school board more than once to fire him, but having gone straight from high school into combat in World War II, he was not easily intimidated. He had a trove of bad jokes and outdated slang that he repeated ritualistically. He called himself Uncle John, alluded often to his crush on the screen goddess Hedy Lamar, here he gave a wolf whistle, and responded to any goopy sentimentality with, I almost tossed my cookies. When you gave a good answer, he shouted, exactly. When you gave a bad answer, he shook his big head till his jowls flapped. Mr. Frisius was driven to convey the astonishing power of words to express the joys and sorrows of human life. He was in his full glory when reading poetry aloud, his soaring Laurence Olivier elocution punctuated by Groucho Marx asides. When reading, say, a grim sonnet by Keats, dying at 25, burning with hopeless love and lust, he would look up with wide-eyed anguish that sharpened a moment later into a glare, a silent accusation that we'd insufficiently appreciated the doomed poet's tragedy. Then he'd growl, that's rougher than a damned cob. When he reached the end of a poem, he would say, okay, let's take our shoes off and run through it, then go back to the beginning and unpack it, phrase by phrase, revealing all the subtle gears and levers of poetic technique, occasionally pausing to mutter, God damn, that's good. Tell me about Let's Take Our Shoes Off and what that has come to mean to you in the years <laughs> since he originally said that, because that, 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 that occurs in the book a couple times. And Yeah, what, 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 so what happened was when I started, when I got thrown into the deep end, and suddenly, okay, tomorrow, Dean, you're going to be a high school teacher. Um, I well, I said, I'll just do what Uncle John did. He's the guy that inspired me. And I actually, my whole 33 years there, I refer to myself shamelessly as Uncle Dean. Nice. Uh, and uh, and when I would read a poem, and then we'd get ready to explicate it, I could not do it without first saying, "Okay, let's take our shoes off and run through it." Nice. How did the kids react to that? Oh, it was great. I, you know, some of my dearest friends are my so are, are former students of mine, and uh, some of them still call me Uncle Dean. And it's, nice. No, it's it's quite lovely, and and some of them have gone on to to become serious writers. Uh, 
uh, uh, book writers. I got uh, one guy who's a, uh, uh, a, a staff writer for The New Yorker. Cool. Uh, another one who's an investigative reporter, a fearless investigative reporter. One great moment, former... So another favorite book of mine to teach my 10th graders was Waiting for Godot. After all the other English 10 teachers stopped teaching it, I insisted on continuing, and they said, "But it." And I and I talk about this in the book. They said, "But it it drives the kids crazy." I said, "Exactly, yeah. Right. That means that means it's working." Um, and um, one of my students was uh, a young man named brilliant young man named Buzzy Cohen, who now we fast forward to 2019. He is a returning winner on Jeopardy. I'm sitting in the studio audience over here in Culver City. He's in the semifinals of the Jeopardy Tournament of Champions. And he's about to be eliminated. They get to final Jeopardy. He's about to, to lose it all. And the question that they ask, the answer is, what is waiting for Godot? Oh my gosh! And he and he wins on that. Wow! And goes on the next day to win the finals and a quarter of a million dollars. Oh my and, gosh! And and you know the part in the uh, after the first commercial where Alex would come to to each contestant and chat with them for a minute, and so when Alex got to him on the Friday show, which actually they they do a whole weeks worth of taping in, in one day and Alex goes backstage and changes his suit and his tie so he so he said to to Buzzy uh so yesterday when you pulled it out in Final Jeopardy with Waiting for Gondo there was a person in the audience who was especially happy who was that and Buzzy said well my my 10th grade English teacher who I read that book and Dean Slider he's there and they they actually put the camera on me and and uh, Alex said did a little a little pronoun to me and said way to go teacher nice now come on that is like like just an ultimate dream for a teacher there's nothing better than that like yeah. that's where the real um benefits of teaching come in like a lot of careers like the real benefits come in with like you know cash or like the vacation policies or whatever like what kind of benefits you get in that career but like the teaching like there's so many of those kinds of moments that that's where the real magic lies and what makes it a special profession that people can stay in for multiple decades you know yeah yeah um let's talk a little bit more about the content in the book here you know you have a wide variety of texts and authors that you feature in this book from Virginia Woolf to Frederick Douglass to F. Scott Fitzgerald, J.D. Salinger, Samuel Beckett, Toni Morrison. I'm wondering how you landed on uh, the, the ones that, that made it into the book as well. Mm -hmm. Well, my basic principle was I want to write about the stuff that I'm excited about. Mm -hmm. I want to, so, so a lot of the texts that I write about were ones that I taught for years and years. So I taught uh, Frederick Douglass's slave narrative for years and years. I, I taught Macbeth, Huckleberry Finn, The Great Gatsby, and I could not be. I could not wait to share my insights into those. And then the next exciting part was when you know the magic that happens on a good day when you're writing, when you go into the zone at, in your writing, and you think you know where all the bodies are buried in Huckleberry Finn after all those decades, and then you start seeing more stuff. 
mm-hmm. like, whoa, where did that insight come from? So, uh, so that's where a lot of them came from. And then, um, you know, there's a certain amount of, of balance, you know, I mean, I'm very excited about Shakespeare. My original concept for the book said, okay, I've got to have one tragedy, one, one Shakespeare tragedy, one Shakespeare comedy, one Shakespeare history play. But then I realized that mm, that's, that was going to be a, a thousand page book. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. So, you know, there's a certain amount of, of balance between, and the sequence of it, uh, um, working with my editor, uh, Jason Gardner, the executive editor at New World Library, who is just wonderful. He just, his, his eye, his in, intuition for recognizing all my best impulses and encouraging them and, and recognizing my, my really bad impulses and, and gently talking me down from them. Uh, he, he was just really invaluable. Uh, so in our process, there was also then, okay, what's the sequence? And I thought about it, the sequencing, my sort of model that I aspired to was, was a, a Beatles album, mm. the sequencing of the tracks. There's a, you know, to a certain degree, you can get, okay, you start with some, something that's uh, exciting and up-tempo, then you go to a ballad, then you, but then there's, there's more subtle aspects of the sequence that you can't even explain, but you just feel, you know, the overall rhythm, the overall arc is just right. And then the other thing, the other, my secret weapon is my wife, Yafa Larea, who is a longtime documentary film editor and actually now producer. Um, so her sense of arc and rhythm is just one of my earlier books. Everything that I write, I have to read to her out loud. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's crucial. If, if it doesn't sound good coming out of your mouth, it doesn't sound good reading it silently on the page. I used to say this every year in my English classes on the first day. I, I would say, look, there's a lot of things you're going to learn this, this year. You're going to learn things about the life of Shakespeare that'll knock your socks off. You're going to learn how to use a semicolon, which will make you officially a literate person. But the most important thing you're going to learn all year, I'm going to tell you right now, everything you write, you must read out loud. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's essential. And I, I mean, because if it doesn't sound good on coming out of your mouth doesn't sound good on the page either and like i would use that as like a writer's workshop kind of activity where the students would read stuff to each other and then their their listening partner would highlight stuff that doesn't sound good coming out of the person's mouth and they'd be like and then they would discuss how can we make it sound better coming out of my mouth and that was like kind of like our peer review activity uh exercise that i love doing and and Um, the thing for the thing for me that actually kind of intensified that effect was when i started moonlighting narrating audiobooks other oh, cool. people other people's as well as my own and that got me really even i thought i was tuned in to you know using the the the, the auditory brain circuits yeah. tuned into my writing but that really got me tuned in it really improved my writing um but uh oh yes yeah, so so reading one of my previous books i was reading it out loud the, the manuscript to to my wife and I get to a sentence in the middle of the book, and she said, that's the beginning of your book. Oh, interesting. I said, really? And I looked at it and went, wow, you're right. And that made the book work. Cool. That, that sense of, of st- structure. 
Nice. You know, I was reading it last night um, as I was, uh, you know, before I was going to sleep, and I was reading your uh, J.D. Salinger and Holden Caulfield chapter, and I have this lifelong bias of Caulfield as kind of like a jerky little entitled brat, like in my mind. Mm-hmm. And after decades of, like, I, your your chapter's helping me kind of reframe and complicate the character of Holden uh, in my own mind, because I've thought this for years, and I have this, like, inexplicable, um, you know, bias against Holden that I probably can't even defend anymore at this point in my life. But I'm wondering about if you can reflect on maybe, like, uh, the the perception that Holden is kind of unlikable to a lot of people, and then kind of like what your what what you feel like your chapter does well to kind of complicate that. Hmm. Funny, I never my my where I'm coming from was so different. I've never thought about uh, uh, Holden as unlikable. I know, that's and a, like I can't even thing. defend it. It's just that like I think that there's a notion today in the very fast paced society that we live in, like the perception of some of these like historical literary figures kind of like change as we, you know, Mm -hmm. get further and further into the future, I guess. Um, So I kind of had this like, this like bias of Holden as just kind of like this like rich little entitled kid. And, you know, your, but your chapter was kind of complicating that for me. And I was just wondering what you thought about that. Good, good, good. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, privileged upper middle class uh, white kids have problems too. Yeah. You know, we're all, look, we're all just trying to, to, to be happy and not suffer. Yeah. You know, it really comes down to that. Uh, one of the reasons that I start the book with William Blake mm-hmm. is that he, in such elegant, luminous, but simple language, he expresses that, you know, when he writes, ah, sunflower, weary of time, who countest the steps of the sun, seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done, right? That's all of us. We are all the weary sunflower, right? Weary. And I, and I explain in the book, you know, the sunflower is, is, is heliotropic. It, it physically follows the sun as it crosses the sky so so that's all of us just just that yearning for for satisfaction yearning for happiness yearning for we know there's got to be something more than just okay you know stuff happens stuff happens stuff happens and then you die that that bigger thing and holden to me represents what one of my teachers, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who I studied with way back in the in the 70s, uh, what he used to call the restlessness of the seeker. Mm-hmm. That is, the, you, you're in that situation where you know there's got to be something more, but you don't know what it is. Yeah. So, so you wind up you all you wind up just condemning everything that cutting down everything that is so yeah actually now i can see this is why holden could look unlikable um actually his sister phoebe in in a the key scene she busts him for this near the end of the book where he's you know going off on his as usual condemning everyone for being phony and yeah and and she says she just looks at him and says you don't like anything. Mm-hmm. You don't like anything. 
Uh, and he kind of, that's the beginning of the wake up call for him to, to seeing that he's just, he's just projecting the toxicity of his own depression and anxiety on, on everything else that he's not seeing, you know, he's seeing in a sense, he's seeing himself as a, as a weary yearning sunflower, but he's not seeing that everyone else is also. Oh, that's okay. That makes a lot of sense to me. And, you know, I was reading this last night. I was like, wow, I think I like Holden a lot more than I've given my, than I've allowed myself to think in the last many, several years. And, you know, in the book there says, it says, I like it when somebody gets excited about something. And I entirely agree. Cause like I've heard people say in the past, like whenever somebody says I'm bored, the response to that is, well, boring people are bored because if you're <laughs> like, if you're just like focusing on what bores you, that means you're not focusing on what is there and what can excite you if you allow yourself to become excited. And I agree entirely. And I'm wondering if you can tell me, um, you've mentioned several chapters, but like what chapters are you like most proud of? Is there like anything that like where you really had some like powerful moments where you, when you finish a chapter, you're like, wow, this is a powerful personal growth for me in this, in these particular chapters. Do you have any examples of that where you're just yeah. like, totally in love with it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First, before I forget, let me mention about this point about boredom. Yeah. Ramdas, Ramdas once said, "Boredom is just lack of attention." Hmm. I agree. Yeah, that's right. really cool. Right, right, right. And I would add because God don't make no junk. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. Uh. Getting back to to Blake for a moment, where Blake said, "Um, you know, you throw this. Um, you you, you right, let me let me get this right." You throw the sand against the wind, and the wind blows it back again, and every sand becomes a gem reflected in the beams divine. Mm. You know, that's describing having sand blow into your eyes. Yeah. That's is just, blech, blech, blech. yeah. It's like, whoa, check this out. It's the, he, he's seeing the divine everywhere. Now, that's, that's what the Dharma really is about. The Dharma enlightenment uh, is, is, is seeing, is waking up and seeing that, gee, this whole idea that, that you know, all this stuff was just stuff, that was a bad dream. All this mm. stuff is, is the, you know, the, the light pervades the stuff. <laughs> the stuff is all the, the light of, of, of the infinite. That the infinite, if it's infinite, it's got to be everywhere. Otherwise, mm -hmm. it ain't infinite. And so that means every little drop of the finite, if you're paying attention, and, and as Ramdas would say, you got, it's all just wow. Mm -hmm. Now, so to your question, um, first, I will confess that more than one of these chapters, by the time I got to the end, reading it to Yafa, sitting out on the little couch outside in our, in our lovely little garden in the back with the hummingbirds flying around, um, um, I, I would be weeping by the end, that I would be moved, so moved, first of all, by the writers that I was having the privilege to write about, mm. um, and, and by the fact that that I really had been able to, I felt capture, you know, in, in, in about 15 pages, capture something about them, that something had come through me in that, you know, standing there at the keyboard, getting into the zone, something had come through that I, bigger than I thought 
could ever come through me and, and better that it was just, you know, it was often very moving. But if I had to pick one, uh, I think it would be my chapter on Emily Dickinson. Just something about the, the, the flow of it, the rhythm of it, the, the which of her poems and lines of poems, I just somehow got into the swing and it's kind of into the music and knew, okay, talk about this, now move to this, now, now move to this. And, and, and the, the, there's a particular, I, I, I don't want to talk about this now. I'll save this for the reader. But, yeah. Yeah. But the, but, but the particular moment, uh, of her actual life that it, that it ends on was just, I, every time I read that, that part, I, I just, I'm just so moved. Fabulous. Uh, Dean, you're making me feel like I, I want to read more. Um, I, I'm feeling my failures right now in the ways that I've let some of my formerly extremely disciplined reading routines kind of fall by the wayside in the last couple of years. Um, so I, I'm feeling very inspired to, to pick up that novel that I'm 30% of the way into uh, tonight instead of turn on HBO Max. I love uh, it. I love it. Yeah, this, this is, is this is a th again, this is this is a thing as that we love to hear as teachers. Oh, yeah. you inspired me to to read. It happened to me as well. I, I tell the story in the book because I knew I had to have a chapter on Moby Dick mm -hmm. because, you know, it's Moby Dick. Um, <laughs> and I start with the story how for 33 years, uh, every year with my American lit class, we would never read it because it's too long. Uh, we, we would read one of his stories, usually Bartleby the Scrivener. But I would spend a day talking about Moby Dick and how great it was. It's a great American novel. Everyone's got to, you got to read this thing before you die. And in my book now, I make the confession all that time, I had never read it. I haven't read it. <laughs> I was faking it. I was faking it. And that finally, to, in the writing of this book, my karma caught, caught up with me. I had to read all 700 odd pages of it. The good news is it turned out that I was not a liar, uh, that it turns out it is as incredibly great as I had been saying. And, and more than that, that it's also really funny. Mm. I had not expected that. Moby Dick is hilarious. And it's also really weird. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it's weird. It's very weird. Yeah. The only way that I think I could get through it is if I had a hard copy of the book and the audiobook in headphones and I had like blocked out the world and I allowed <laughs> the audiobook reader to pace me through it as I read it on the page. Yeah. I feel like that would keep me moving forward instead of like doom spiral in my brain and like become distracted and like be like, I'll never finish this and then slam it shut and walk away out of despair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I actually used uh, audiobook to help me through some of the, the chapters as well. Awesome. I love that when you use the tools that are available to you. Ah, it's pure teaching. Um, I'm He's wondering. Got, yeah, go ahead. I'm wondering if there's any authors or chapters that you were drafting that like didn't make the cut or like people that like you were thinking about including that didn't quite get in the book itself. Yeah, you know, we, we, we were starting, I wound up writing a, a, a longer book as it is, as it, the form that it wound up being published in was longer than, than it was supposed to be. My contract called for a, a shorter book, but I, you know, there was just so much that I wanted to do. And when I finally sent the manuscript to Jason and, you know, and, and he, when he first received it, he got a note, he said, okay, looking forward to reading this and just know, you know, we'll, we'll probably have to you know, cut 
you know, a couple of chapters. And so I'm going, oh, this is like Sophie's choice, you know, yeah. which, of my, which of my darling children <laughs> am I going to send off to the camps? Uh, and uh, God bless him. He finished r reading the, the manuscript and, and Jason wrote me back. He said, there's nothing here that I'm even tempted to cut. Mm. Oh, God, that just made me so happy. But yeah, you know, as I said before, I wanted to do more Shakespeare. Um, um, the, you know, the first three words of my title, uh, the Dharma Bums, of course, comes from Jack Kerouac. Yeah. And uh, uh, it would seem logical that I would, would have a chapter on Kerouac. And I was planning it. But I wound up not doing it, and and I actually I have a, a little note I note it in the last chapter. I have a paragraph or two, and uh, what what I said was, um, I'm leaving you on your own with Jack Kerouac. Kerouac lived and wrote such a hopped up mix of revelation and commotion, of luminous joy and baffled joyride that it's probably best to jump right into On the Road or The Dharma Bums or Visions of Gerard without anyone trying to sort it out for you. Let Jack be Jack. But I've felt his spirit hitchhiking its way through this book. Most of the writers here lived some version of Kerouac's beat-up, beatific adventure, dancing or stumbling their way to what he called a plank where all the angels dove off and flew into infinity. I, the omission of a, uh, the the lack of a Kerouac chapter caught my attention as well because he also is the the quote on the very beginning of the book. There's lots of keys, but only one door. Yeah, <laughs> really yeah. cool. Um, you know, Dean, I, a podcaster as a podcaster, I'm always intrigued by people's forays into this medium, and I watched your interview with uh one of your interviews with michael imperioli and oh. one with uh david lynch yes um and i'm wondering if you can just like you know maybe spend a moment and promote your podcast that you've done and talk to a little people a little bit about what you do over there because i feel like that might be connected to one of your earlier books where you're talking about film too yes yes so so my dear friends in since childhood uh christopher bush and i co-host uh, the, a podcast called The Filmosophers, mm -hmm. uh, where we talk about movies and try to take a, you know, kind of deeper dive into uh, uh, movies and the creative process behind them. Uh, and one of our interviews was, yeah, with David Lynch, who was amazing, amazing and hilarious. Yeah. My favorite moment in that interview was when I coughed and I kind of got caught in a spasmodic cough a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and my first thought was, well, we'll have to cut that. And David Lynch immediately says, oh, that's such an interesting sound. Nice. I want to record that. I can do something with that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I thought, wow, there it is. That's, that's the creative mind at work. Like we're turning other people's garbage, other people's outtakes into art. Yeah, I love it. Um that's a really cool show. Are you, because I noticed you haven't done one in a while. Is, there, is the podcast sort of on a hiatus at the moment? Or are you coming back for more? Uh, you know, I just, when, when I get a call from Chris, he really does all the booking. Oh, cool. Everything. I just, I just kind of show up. Uh, so, so you'd have to ask him. I love uh, it. 
But yeah, Mike. But also interviewing Michael Imperioli, and most people know him as an actor. They know him uh, as uh, Christopher on The Sopranos and uh, Spider in Goodfellas. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't know that he's also a very serious writer, director, and a practitioner of Vajrayana Buddhism, Tibetan cool. Buddhism. So yeah, we we he he was great. We had a, a really deep talk. So yeah, the. The, the podcast is called The Filmosophers. You can find all of our um, episodes on thefilmosophers.com or on YouTube. I love it. Well, Dean, um, to bring us in for a landing today, I'm wondering if you can maybe tell us a little bit about what is next for you and also where people can find you if they want to know more about your work. Yeah, so what's next for me is... Um, Right now, as we're recording this in May of 2022, you know, we're, we're starting to crawl out of quarantine. Yeah. And uh, the last few weeks, uh, I've done my first few live in-person workshops and teaching events in a couple of years. And it's great. I yeah. love doing this stuff. Um, so I'm looking forward to doing more of that. Um, and... Uh, I do have the seeds of the next book, but um, I, I, I can't talk about that uh, at, at this yeah. point. It, it's it's too delicate. It's a seed. Yeah, it's a seed. You, you, you don't keep digging up the seed to look at it. You, you have yeah. to let it germinate at this point. Um, people can find me. Uh, the two good places to find me are uh, my website, deanslider.com. Uh, getting back to the difficult spelling, it's S L U. Y T E R. Just remember U Y as in buy or guy, buy this guy a beer. So Dean Slider, S L U Y T E R dot com. Um, also, you know, if you just remember, easier to remember the title of my book and you, you Google that and you'll, you'll, then, you know, you'll find your way to me. Also, I have a YouTube channel uh, where I've been archiving a lot of, um, sessions or excerpts from sessions um since quarantine started i've been two three times a week leading meditation and discussions over zoom and by the way the, the, these are free and open to everyone so if people come to my website they can sign up to get on the the mailing list and then they'll get the zoom invitation to join these these discussions the main thing that i i want to mention here quickly about meditation because mm -hmm. this is a big passion in my life has been showing people that meditation is not what they thought. Yeah. When people say, oh, I tried to meditate, but it was hard. That means that they were trying to flatten out all the waves of, of, of thinking and perceiving and feeling on the surface of, of the ocean of awareness. And that's an impossible task. You know, that's a game of whack-a-mole that you can't win. That's yeah. why people think meditation is hard. But instead, if you allow gravity to pull you down a couple feet below the surface, you discover that, oh, the water down here is and always has been silent underneath the surface level where the turbulence is. And so what actually turns out to be the most effective approach to meditation is effortlessness effortlessness. And so that's how I lead meditation on the, these sessions, uh, which people can join uh, in real time on, on via Zoom, or they can see them archived on YouTube. 
I kind of want to join one of your meditations now. Please do. Please do. I'd love to see you there. I'll, uh, I'll email you later. Yeah, um, Dean Slider, author, The Dharma Bum's Guide to Western Literature, Finding Nirvana in the Classics, out now from New World Library. Great book. I have loved reading it and chatting with you about it. And our wonderful subplot of English teacher nerd out time has been <laughs> extremely rewarding and fulfilling for me. So I just want to thank you sincerely for, for joining me here today to talk about this wonderful book and your, your many hats in the world. It's just been a real pleasure. Pleasure for me. Thank you so much, Greg. <laughs>